Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you are looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church's campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. everybody. Again, my name is Colton Tatham, and I'm a Journey Bible Church's West Campus pastor. Uh, today we're going to be continuing our sermon series in Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, uh, be sure to open up and get ready to take some notes. Uh, after the service, we do, we'll have communion, so uh, feel free if you want to grab some of the communion elements now. You can, or you can wait until uh, we get to our communion element in the service. Uh, In our last message, if you weren't here, uh, we looked at Paul's introductory address to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. Um, If you missed the sermon, I do strongly recommend that you really go back and watch it on YouTube or listen to it on Spotify as soon as you can. Uh, We overviewed several significant themes and contexts that truly help us to better understand how the letter fits together as a whole. However, here is the condensed 100-mile-an-hour review for you. First, we examined the will, the nature, and the ways of God, who is the source, means, and object of salvation. There's a lot in that sentence, but there's more. Second, we surveyed the significance of Paul, who was a persecuting Pharisee turned prisoner apostle. Thirdly, we reviewed the historical context and church-planting history of the Ephesian church in Acts 19, as well as the city's regional significance in Rome and the churches in Asia Minor, the churches that, Paul, uh, that John references in his letter of Revelation. Lastly, we saw that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the game plan. Again, the gospel is the game plan for God, for Paul, and for the church against the spiritual forces of darkness. You may also recall that Ephesians is divided into two major parts, connected by a therefore in Ephesians 4.1. Part 1 is made up of chapters 1 through 3, and this part is the doctrinal description of God's gospel story, the foundation for church belief and identity. Therefore, that's chapter 4, verse 1, part 2 which is made up of chapters 4 through 6. This part here is about the church's practical response to God's gospel story that ultimately makes up our own story as Christ followers. Whereas Ephesians 1, 1 through 2, the introduction, serves as kind of Paul's address to the faithful saints in Ephesus, Verse 3, which we're starting out in, really serves as the introduction to this first major part of the letter in chapters 1 through 3. So what I'd like to do in this message today is offer an overview of the first three chapters, and then we're going to dive into verses 3 through 6, which Jacob read for us. 
Now, we've already established that this letter is organized into two parts. Very simply, we could describe these two parts as doctrine, therefore practice, or belief, therefore behavior, or God, therefore us. So what does part one look like maybe from a mountaintop view? Well, one might say that the first part of Ephesians is all about the foundation for the Christian life. When we look down from the mountaintop, we see a strong foundation, and on it are three pillars. There's the reality of the Christian life, the first pillar, the revolution of the Christian life, and the revelation of the Christian life. The first chapter is really the first pillar on this foundation. It is the reality of the Christian life. We discover that the Christian life is a reality and that the Christian life is possible because of God's will, God's nature, and God's ways. The reality of the Christian life is that it entirely depends on God. The second chapter is the second pillar on the foundation. This second pillar is the revolution of the Christian life. In chapter 2, we learn that by God's grace, those who were spiritually dead are now resurrected with Christ. Those who worked against God are now working for Christ. And those who were once hostile are now united together in Christ. If you've truly experienced the saving grace of God, it's impossible not to be spiritually transformed by Jesus. From bondage to freedom, from death to life, and from hostility to peace, we see in chapter 2 that Jesus is the means by which the spiritual revolution of the Christian life is made possible. Then, in chapter 3, we find the third pillar on the foundation of Ephesians. And this third pillar is the revelation of the Christian life. God's Word tells us here that the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to us so that through the church, God's revelation might be known to the ends of the earth. Uniting these three pillars together is a recurring foundational theme that we find throughout all of chapters 1 through 3. And this recurring theme is that God is the source, means, and object of the Christian life. Again, God is the source, the means, and the object of the Christian life. This theme and these three pillars really form the foundation of the God's gospel story in part one of Ephesians. As we'll see in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 in this message, God is the source of our salvation. The Father chose us and predestined us before the foundation of the world. God is the source of the Christian life, and the Christian life would be impossible apart from him because the Christian life flows from him. In Ephesians chapter 2, we learn God is the means of salvation. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the one who was crucified in order to tear down the dividing wall of hostility between sinners and their Savior. 
Thus, Ephesians shows us that God is also the means of the Christian life. The Christian life can happen because God has done the spiritual work to make it happen. Lastly, the Apostle Paul also incorporates two prayers into the first part of the letter. Uh, You can find these prayers at the end of chapter 1 and the end of chapter 3. The object of these prayers is God himself. God is not just the source or the means of the Christian life. God is also the object of the Christian life, too. He is the object of our praise, our worship, our prayers, our thoughts, our thanksgiving. God ought to be the object of everything that we do as Christians. The mountaintop view of Ephesians 1 through 3 is that of three pillars united by one theme. And what we see is God's foundation for the Christian life. Now, if you've ever been skiing before, uh, snowboarding or hiking, maybe in the Rocky Mountains, then you would probably know that it can be pretty easy to get lost um, if you don't have a trail map, especially if you're one of those backwoods skiers and you like to go off course. Uh, What we've kind of done so far is we've looked at the mountain of Ephesians like we're going up a ski lift or a gondola. The next thing I want to do is give us a trail guide for chapter 1 before we start skiing through the text. So again, we've established that chapter 1 is about the reality of the Christian life, but what does this mean? Um, what What are we going to see as we ski through the text, as we work our way through it? Well, chapter 1 starts with the Apostle Paul's greeting to the church in Ephesus, which is then followed by a doctrinal description of God, and then finally concludes with a prayer of thanksgiving to God. With respect to the Christian life, we see verses 3 through 14 calling us to live believing in the God of salvation, whereas verses 15 through 23 are calling us to live praying to the God of salvation, believing in the God of salvation and praying to the God of salvation are absolutely, um, they are the absolute depiction of the reality of the Christian life. So who then is the God of salvation that we believe in or pray to according to chapter 1? Well, God reveals himself to be Trinitarian in nature. That is to say, God is one God united as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We learn in Ephesians 1 that in the past, it was the Father's will to elect and choose us for salvation. Then we learn that the Son is presently at work to redeem us into salvation. And lastly, we learn that the Spirit is witnessing to a future inheritance waiting to be given by God to those who are being saved. The God of salvation that we believe in and pray to is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has been at work before we were even born to predestine us to salvation through Jesus. God is working now to redeem those who respond to his overwhelming grace by faith in Jesus, and God promises to grant us an unimaginable inheritance one day with Jesus. This is the God of salvation that we believe in 
and pray to. And this God of salvation is the source, the means, and the object of the Christian life. Now, I hope these overviews through Ephesians the letter, Ephesians part 1, in Ephesians chapter 1 have been helpful. We've kind of been zooming in bit by bit. Uh, if you like these kinds of overviews of the Bible, then please be sure to get yourself a good study Bible. A lot of study Bibles have great notes that go into much more detail about uh, these kinds of matters. Uh, we're probably not going to do another overview like this until we get to chapter 4, where the second part of Ephesians starts. So right now, though, we're going to dig into the text. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me and look there at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. And I'm going to read this uh, passage again for us. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, in the beloved. Now, what strikes me first in this text is the abundance of blessing. There is just a true abundance of blessing here. Blessed be God, the God and Father, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, including his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Ephesians introduces us to an abundance of blessing from the Father. But this isn't unilateral blessing. These aren't one-way blessings flowing from God to us. The abundance of blessing is reciprocal. God blesses us, and we bless God. Verse 3 opens telling us that God is the object of our blessing, which says, blessed be God. And then verse 3 continues to tell us that we are the object of his blessing, which says, who has blessed us in Christ. This is reciprocal, two-way blessing. Blessed be God who has blessed us. Blessed be God who has blessed us. This sermon is titled, The Father's Will. Uh, last week, we teased that the Father's will is victory-oriented and team-oriented. God has willfully decreed victory over sin and death, and God has willfully decreed that his church in Christ will be the ones to get that victory. Yet here, we also see that it is the Father's will to bless the church, and this blessing is absolutely profound. God does not treat us merely as servants that he orders around and tells what to do. He doesn't just treat us as players that he coaches and manages. He doesn't just treat us as soldiers that, are, that follow orders on the battlefield. Rather, these verses show us that God the Father does what? He adopts us. God adopts us as his children in Christ and then blesses us 
in the same manner that he blesses God the Son. What is the will of God the Father? God blesses us so that we can bless him. God blesses us so that we can bless him. In John 4.34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, the result of God's favor, the substance of God's provision, the product of God's blessing, the food for the person of God the Son is to do the will of God the Father. And the same is true for us as his adopted sons and daughters. Now imagine if God's will became your will. How might that change your life? Imagine if God's will became all of our will. Imagine if every time that you wanted to bless another person with a kind word, maybe an unexpected gift or some you know, self-sacrificial help, imagine if you prayerfully, instinctively, spiritually, vocally blessed that person so that they would bless God. Imagine if blessing God was our ultimate goal of blessing others. What would happen if we stopped blessing other people to get something back in return? Or to get a future favor that we could collect on? Or to make up for something we did in the past? Or to make ourselves feel less sorry for someone in need? Or to get a thank you? To get a prize? To get a pat on the back? To build up our self-worth? What would happen if we stopped blessing other people for ourselves and instead we chose to bless others so that they would bless God? Personally, I think if more Christians did this, they would find themselves radically transformed and they would see others transformed as well. But this is not an easy thing. But, you know, my challenge to you would be to think of just one or two people this week that you could bless in this way. Just go and do it. Bless someone for the sole purpose that they would bless God. Do it with no strings attached at all. Now, the Bible's reciprocal blessing, that culture, is a bit different than Instagram's hashtag blessed culture. Um, If you've ever used hashtag blessed in a post before, this is the part of the sermon where you should start to get worried. The the preacher might have called you out or looked up at your Facebook post. Who knows? But no, not really. I've got better things to do with my time. Sorry. So there's nothing wrong with a hashtag blessed uh, post when you remember that God blesses us so that we can bless him and that God blesses us so that we can bless others. God's blessings are supposed to multiply through us, not end with us, though. In a Gospel Coalition article in 2019, a woman named Christine Gordon wrote this. I just found this really insightful. She said this, Search hashtag blessed on Instagram, and you will find more than 100 million posts. The hashtag highlights pictures of beautiful places, toned bodies, new babies, graduations, successes, and abundance. And then you scroll down, and you'll see recent business startups, wonderful technology, new marriages, and fancy cars. All of these are good things. 
gifts given to humanity by a loving God. But the hashtag seems to say, this is the only way God blesses us, by giving us obviously good things. She asked this, have we defined the blessed life as one of abundance and power, popularity and success? Imagine instead opening up your Instagram feed and reading a story about a woman who has just lost her job. In the post, she wonders how she'll cover her next mortgage payment, how she'll get school supplies for her children, and how she'll pay for the repair her car desperately needs. What should her hashtag be? Hashtag not blessed? Or what about a post by a mother whose child lives with a myriad of birth-related problems, Her most recent status talks about physical suffering, learning disabilities, and the independent life her child will never have. Her hashtag? Hashtag cursed? Christine's point is that a Christian's blessed life is supposed to be counter-cultural. We don't want to confuse the Bible's wide view of blessing with the world's narrow view of blessing. In wealth, poor or rich, in health, sick or strong, in status, weak or powerful, in success, little or much, a follower of Jesus Christ has received more blessings than the world can see. The Christian's blessed life is much fuller, deeper, and richer than the happy, serendipitous events that we post and share. Hashtag blessed is but a thimble of God's ocean of blessing. Summarizing Ephesians 1.3, it says, Blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. The verse does not say some spiritual blessings, and it does not quantify these spiritual blessings as though, you know, there's five blessings you need to collect, or there's 20 blessings out there to collect, or there's a hundred blessings that you need to get before you can become a mature Christian. No. The text says, Blessed be God the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. This means All of the blessings, not one of them is missing. God has not withheld a single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places from the church. What we'll see in Ephesians is that most of these blessings are not hashtag blessed blessings that we'll typically see posted on social media. You know, Pastor Mike was telling me this week that he thinks verse 3 is here to introduce the overwhelming types of blessings that we receive from God that Paul goes on to describe in the next couple of chapters. And I agree with him. Yet here in these verses, we can already see two significant blessings from God the Father. The first one is in verse 4. It says, He chose us. And the second one is in verse 5. It says, He predestined us for adoption. What's interesting about these blessings is that they are um, described in the past tense. In a sense, they've already happened. God chose us. 
And God predestined us for adoption before the foundation of the world. So that means before we even existed, God the Father had willfully decreed that some would receive these blessings. Now, at this point, I think it's important we make a distinction, and I thought this was really helpful from um, Pastor John Piper. He observes this. The way we bless God and the way God blesses us are radically different. You see, we can't choose him. We can't predestine him. We can't adopt him. Although the relationship between God's blessings and our blessings is reciprocal, the way God blesses us and the way we bless God is different. God may have chosen us, God may have predestined us, God may have adopted us, but God doesn't worship us, God doesn't pray to us, God doesn't thank us as if, you know, there's something he needs from us that he lacks. If God were to bless us in these ways, well, then he really wouldn't be God anymore. He'd be one of us. Rather, there are some special ways that we get to bless God, such as worshiping him and praying to him and thanking him for all that he's given us in our lives. God blesses us so that we can bless him. But again, the way we bless God and the way God blesses us are distinct. Our blessings are reciprocal, but they're also asymmetrical. They're together, but they're not entirely the same. When we look at these verses, there are actually two sets of blessings. So let's look at them one at a time. If you have your Bibles, let's look there right at verse 4. It says here, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So here's God's blessing. God's blessing we've received is the Father chose us. And our blessing that we give in return is we live for the Father. We live holy and blameless for the Father. Now this blessing that we see here is something theologians call the doctrine of election. Uh, the word election comes from the Greek word eklektos, which means chosen. Uh, the Bible teaches that the elect are the chosen ones by God according to his will. Uh, one of the ways that we could view Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 is through kind of a doctrinal lens. Uh, sometimes doctrines like election become mystified in the church. And what that means is they become confusing or unclear because, you know, we don't talk about them as much as we talk about maybe more prominent doctrines. Election is actually a fairly simple doctrine to understand, and it has some amazing implications. So I want to work our way actually through the text to see how God does this. This is really, this is really cool. If we break down Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, here's what we can learn in this passage about the will of God the Father. It's God's will to choose undeserving sinners to be saved. The Father's method in the doctrine of election is that he chose and predestined those who would be adopted as co-heirs with the Son before the beginning of time. The Father's means of accomplishing this incredible act of salvation was through Christ's death and resurrection. The Father's 
purpose in election would be to sanctify sinners who could become holy and blameless before him. The Father's motive in election is love. The same love and devotion the Father has for the Son would be the same love and devotion the Father would extend to the elect. The Father's result in election would be that new sons and daughters, all adopted image bearers, uh, would be glorifying Him. And that's really the Father's goal in election as well. It's the praise of His glorious grace, according to the text. And here we see the Father's method, means, purpose, motive, result, and goal in just a couple of verses when it comes to the doctrine of election, which is pretty cool. But when you consider the immense implications of God choosing you before the foundation of the world, it really changes everything. If your soul could be in the mind of God before creation, then, you know, we should never doubt God cares for us and God loves us in every second of every day. In some ways, election reminds me of moving from one side of the mountain to another side of the mountain. You know, most mountains actually have two sides. Uh, there's one side, the good side, which is called the windward side of the mountain, and they usually have very lush green. Um, they, there's the wind, and it carries up all the moisture up, up to the top of the mountain, so it's, it's really beautiful. Uh, and then you have the leeward side of the mountain, and it's usually dry, rocky, and desolate. So, uh, and if a, in a ski resort, the leeward side of the mountain is usually the very difficult side of the mountain to ski down. So that's where all the hardest trails are. Uh, the two sides of the mountain are usually separated by a massive peak that actually is tall enough to change the weather patterns on either side. And the bigger the mountain or the bigger the mountain range, the bigger the difference on either side of the mountain. Now, if, imagine if you're a fruit-bearing tree. If you're a fruit-bearing tree, then the windward side of the mountain is the side you want to be on. That's where all the sun, all the water, and all the cloud cover you need is going to be. But the problem is that spiritually, we live in a world that is stuck on the leeward side of the mountain. Our world is spiritually dry, it's dusty, and it's a dying desert, and it's hard to grow anything. Election is the act of God choosing who he's going to move to the good side of the mountain. This choosing happened before the mountain was even made. The only way of knowing if you've been chosen is if you have indeed been moved. Ephesians 2.14 says of Jesus, For he himself is our peace, who has, made, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. If you can picture that dividing wall of hostility as the mountain, Jesus has broken down the peak. In Christ alone, Jesus has broken down the mountain of sin and transplanted us into good soil. You see, on the dry side of the mountain, it's impossible to be holy and blameless. Apart from the saving grace of God, there is no way to grow. But when we've been chosen, 
When the Father has transferred us to the windward side of the mountain, He gives us every spiritual blessing that we need to live holy and blameless lives. If your spiritual life were to look like the dead leeward side of the mountain, that doesn't mean that you have to stay there. That doesn't mean that you're not part of the elect. What you don't have to do is you don't have to wait to discover whether you're God's elect or not, whether or not you've been chosen by God. Because if you know you have a need, all God wants you to do is faithfully follow His Son to the better side of the mountain. If you do that, you will be saved. So the first set of blessings shows us God's choosing leads to us living for the Father. And this happens as we follow the Son. The second set of blessings shows us God's adoption leads to us praising the Father. And this too happens as we follow the Son. At the end of Ephesians 1, 4 through verse 6, it says this. It says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here we see God's blessing that we've received is the Father has adopted us. And our blessing that we give is that we praise the Father. Now predestination or predestining carries with it an even more significant connotation than election. Predestining is more than just choosing. To predestine someone is to preordain or preappoint someone to a particular position. And in this case, the predestined position is regal. It's royal. The preappointed position is that of an adopted royal heir, a prince or a princess. Wayne Grudem defines God's spiritual adoption of believers in this way. He writes, Adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. Now, I know that some of you who are part of the West Campus launch team are parents who've gone through the process of adoption, and some of you are in families where your parents or relatives have adopted a son or daughter. Uh, Next Sunday at Journey Bible Church will be a great Sunday. We'll be celebrating Adoption Sunday. Um, And, you know, in good families where a proper adoption has taken place, it's really important to them in those families to make sure that, you know, everybody knows that an adopted child is never, ever treated as a second-class child. Whether hereditary or through adoption, children are children, and they are full members of the families that they belong to. And this is really theologically significant. This means that the same love God the Father shows God the Son is the same love God the Father shows His adopted sons and adopted daughters. In verse 4, if you look there, the Greek word agape, which is used for love, is used to describe the Father's motive for adopting us. Then at the end, in verse 6, the Greek word agape appears again in a different form, meaning beloved, and it describes the Father's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. The point is that God the Father's adopted children get to experience the same love from God the Father that He has for God the Son. And this is good news. 
If you are a Christian, never see yourself as a half-member, second-class citizen of God's heavenly family. You have been predestined by God himself to be a full member and thus a full inheritor within God's heavenly family as an adopted prince or princess in, her, in his kingdom. You know, most of us in this world, we may not be in line to inherit very much. And I doubt many of us are in line to get a you know, royal title in England or anything. But in Christ, what's really cool is that we're all in line to inherit riches from heaven that not even billionaires like Jeff Bezos can comprehend. Now here is where we want to be careful not to slip into hashtag blessed. Here's our biblical reality check. God's ultimate purpose is not to bless us. God's ultimate purpose is not even to adopt us. If you can believe it, his ultimate purpose is not even to save us. Look there at verse 5. God the Father's ultimate purpose in predestining us to himself as children through his Son, according to the what? The purpose of his will, the purpose of the Father's will, which is what exactly verse 6 says, to the praise of of his glorious grace, to the praise of the Father's glorious grace. What is the purpose of the Father's will to bless us as adopted sons and daughters? Answer, it is that praise would erupt and resound for the Father's glorious grace. You see, God the Father cannot demonstrate to his creation the immensity of his overwhelming grace to those who've always lived on the lush windward side of the mountain. They don't understand the heinous evil of sin, death, and decay like those of us who live on the leeward side do. The Father's grace is magnified in us further when those from the leeward, desolate side of the mountain are taken away from their desperation and are brought into his love, his grace, and his peace on the windward side. Ultimately, like any good parent, any good creator, or any good king, God the Father wants to see his wayward and rebellious children returning to him. And God wants to hear those who were once hostile and traitorous singing praises for his love and his grace. Now, when it comes to the way that we view God's blessings, there are a few problems we might encounter. One problem is that we entirely restrict God's blessings to the things that this world deems are blessings. Hashtag blessed. Another problem is that we restrict God's blessings by thinking that they are an end in themselves. In reality, God's blessings are intended to multiply through us, not end in us. When God blesses us, we're supposed to reciprocally bless him and multiplicatively bless others, not just accept the blessing with a polite, hey, thank you, God, and then move on with our lives. When I think of a picture of blessing, uh, I can't help but think of Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. Anybody here read that children's book? I see a lot of head, head nods, so great. I don't have to ruin the ending. So uh, if you haven't read it, it's a good one to read. 
even more extraordinary, in my opinion, than the giving tree is this tree up on the screen. Um, I think only about 16 of these trees exist in the world right now, and none of them have actually reached full maturity yet. Uh, this is actually a new species of tree invented in Syracuse University, and it is called the Tree of Forty Fruit, if you can believe that. And this isn't some kind of like genetic um, Frankenstein monstrosity project. In fact, there are no seeds for the Tree of Forty Fruit that you can buy. Uh, the Tree of Forty Fruit is actually the marvelous result of the simple, long-standing botany process of grafting in multiple stone fruit branches into a single healthy tree. Different parts of these branches of the tree bloom and bear fruit in different seasons, including peaches, plums, apricots, almonds, you name it. The entire project actually started as an art project, but now the tree of 40 fruit has become something so much more. Uh, it requires an expert botanist to keep it growing and producing fruit, and in the wild, no such tree would really even be possible. When many of us approach God, we approach God like we might approach the giving tree or the tree of 40 fruit. We approach God asking ourselves, what fruit looks good to the eye, and what fruit can we reach to pick? Like most of Shel Silverstein's books for kids, The Giving Tree is a bittersweet story. The problem is, is that we treat God like the giving tree. The tree gives and gives and gives, and in the story, we take, we take, and we take. But when viewed through a biblical lens, it turns the story upside down. In truth, the Christian is called to be the giving tree. And the real question is what kind of fruit is God the gardener going to find on our branches? Many see God like a tree, and when it's in season, and when it's convenient, we pick from God the plump blessings that we deserve. But in reality, the opposite is true. There are dying trees, there are diseased and broken trees, and there are even budding trees growing on the leeward side of this broken world. We are the trees, and God is the gardener. God is the good gardener, transplanting the trees he's chosen and tending them with everything they need to bear fruit and multiply. God is the gardener who chooses us, who predestines us, and adopts us into a better orchard. So if God is the gardener, what fruit will he find on you? You know, instead of asking ourselves, what fruit can we pluck from God, Ask yourself this, if God is the gardener, what fruit will he find on you? When Jesus, God the Son, found no first fruit figs on the fig tree in Jerusalem, he cursed it, it withered, and it died. That was an act of God the Son. Jesus later then tells his disciples in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you faithfully remain in Jesus, it's not a matter of if you'll bear fruit. And it's not even a matter of when you'll bear fruit. Telling yourself that you're going to bear fruit someday is not what Jesus says. 
Jesus says, you will bear much fruit. So it's not a matter of if or when. It's a matter of what type of spiritual fruit are you bearing in the season that you're in. If you're like the tree of 40 fruit, God can use you to bear fruit in every kind of season. God can produce in you blessings to his praise, and God can produce in you blessings to others. So don't hesitate to examine yourself this week. If God is the gardener, what fruit will he find in you? And here's the last point that I kind of want to move to as we close. Another thing that we must do is we must move from asking for God's blessings to claiming God's blessings. Again, we must move from asking for God's blessings to claiming God's blessings. It can be so easy to miss Ephesians 1.3, which tells us the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Again, not some, but every spiritual blessing. One Christian commentator observed too many Christians are asking for things that they have already received from God. As such, we need to switch from asking for God's blessings to claiming God's blessings. Already in Ephesians 1, we can see God's blessings to claim. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, and God has predestined us for adoption as children in Christ. If you and I really claimed these blessings, it would change our week. If we actively lived as though our names were written in the book of life, how much freer, how much bolder, how much more faithful would we be? If we actively lived as though God our Father who adopted us into our heavenly, in his heavenly family, how much less would we doubt God? How much more would we want to listen to his word? How much more love and gratitude and praise would we give him? You know, there may be something in your life that you've been asking God desperately for. And there's no reason for you to stop asking God to bless you in your life. Jesus himself reveals we have a good father, and our good father gives good gifts. But as we conclude this message, I want to challenge you this week to remember the blessings you've already received from God and then claim them, lay hold of them. Bring your election to mind. Bring your adoption to mind this week. And let those blessings transform the way you bless others to bless God. As Ephesians 1 has taught us, the reality of the Christian life is that God blesses us so that we can ultimately bless him and bless others. With that, let's pray. Father God, Long, long ago, you blessed Abram with an incredible promise. God, you told him that he would be blessed to be a blessing and that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Since then, history has only proven your timeless words true. God, we ask that you would help us to claim the blessings you've so graciously given us, Lord. Help, by, help us just to lay hold of what those blessings are in our minds right now. God, help us to lay hold of our election in Christ, our adoption in Christ, our salvation in Christ. 
Lord, let us not forget that if you are for us, then none can stand against us. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, convict us of our selfishness. Help us to release our discontentment, our arrogance, and our envy to you. God, thank you for transferring us from this leeward world of darkness into the windward kingdom of light. God, through us, produce much fruit in every season for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, all God's people said, Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.